0: I want to address an issue, I went on vacation and the whole country went to pot, Um, I think it was going long before I went on vacation, but I literally, we were out of contact for quite a while and, you know, and of course the Supreme Court case thing came down and I want to just address that just for a moment and then we'll turn to Philippians and wrote down some thoughts and listened to a lot of guys over the last couple of weeks speak on this and I thought I would address it this morning because it is a significant issue. And I think it's the beginning of some hardships and even possible persecution that will come to the church someday. But I want to reassure you of a couple things. Number one, that um, there is no human court, there is no supreme court that trumps God. Do you believe that? God is over all things. And so um, we we can't look at that and say, oh, well, (laughs) you know, God lost. He did not lose. God was not defeated in any way by this ruling. And marriage has not changed because a few people in black robes redefined what God has always laid down. And so I want to reassure you this morning that the Bible teaches us over and over that God will prevail. His truth will always ring true and those who oppose it. And, and I beg for their salvation because the opposite is tremendously horrific. But God will win. And he is, he is a merciful God but he is a judge. And, and that leads to the second thought is the Word of God always pronounces judgment with you from all the way from Genesis 3 on for those who reject God's truths. Now, you don't have to fall under the judgments of God when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he frees you from that. But any nations or groups or, or people who have ever come up against God and rejected His truth, He has judged them. The book is historical on that and and it's an issue that we need to remind ourselves so we, Grace Bible Church are proclaimers of truth and we don't compromise on issues we lovingly and humbly because we don't deserve the grace we have but we lovingly and humbly but yet boldly say this is what God says And, and it's the best thing you can give those who you love is the truth And so we must stand firm on not only marriage but everything else society is caving on And, and unfortunately too many churches in America. Third thought is it seems we may be moving into the minority of people who are willing to stand for truth and there is a rapid decline. Al Mohler said it best. There is a point where Civilizations will tip immorality, and once they tip, it goes quickly. And so, we, we must say God is right. Not us, not us saying to the world, Oh, you're wrong and we're right. No, we say God is right. He's a loving, kind God who has sent his own son to die for the grave sins of us. But he is right. And we hold to what he has to say. And I would plead with you to hold a biblical worldview. Fight it. Children, young people in colleges and high schools, and they're going to come at you as hard as possible. And you will be persecuted for standing through the truth of the word of God. And some of you are in places of quick judgment that will come because of your line of work. But I beg you, Hold your biblical worldview. The world needs it. The world needs it. Another aspect I want to remind you of is that we are not promised religious freedom in the Bible. It is unprecedented how long America has had this freedom. And I think we get so used to it, right? We, we've all known it. We've all grown up with it. I have stood in Red Square in Russia and looked at the Kremlin and all the parade grounds and, and sat amazed as a young boy seeing, knew that one press of a button could start a world war. Remember those days, right? Those of us who are a little bit older. And yet now I was over there to preach the gospel. I've watched God do amazing things around the world. But we are not licensed to have freedom in this world we're not above the Christians in Russia, the Christians in China, the Christians throughout Europe. Don't forget that. That there may be a time and God may be moving us into that time that you're going to say, I believe in Jesus and I believe in his word and all that it says. And you could lose jobs. We could lose tax ID status. Will you still come to church if you give a check and it doesn't do anything for your tax write-off? Because that's coming. So, I want to be careful here that that we realize that we're not guaranteed that. There's not some special book that tells them, well, America's going to be free from this and Jesus is going to return and America's not going to see this. We could see this in our lifetime. Those of us that are a half a century old or older, you may not see it, but your children may. Another thought, marriage is not the ultimate battleground. I think too many Christians want to go fight this marriage thing right off the bat. We stand for it. We believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. God ordained it. He said it. He's the author of it. It's all written out in the scriptures in Genesis 2. Paul refers to it. Jesus refers to it. If you don't believe it's not ordained by God, read Jesus' word because he quotes the Old Testament. So important that we understand that. But the battleground is not per se the marriage. It's the gospel because ultimately, Christian marriages represent the gospel. A wife is a picture of the church. A husband's a picture of Christ. That's what we preach. That's what we teach. So that's the battleground, brothers and sisters. The gospel. And we will stand on marriage and, and gender roles and all that stuff that we will probably get rocks thrown at us about. But, but this gospel... We stand on the gospel. And then lastly, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He didn't say it's yours, he says it's his. We must be careful how we handle vengeance. There is no place in Christ's word for us to retaliate. In fact, it's the other way, it's turn the cheek. And so persecution will come to America's church. And we trust the Lord that he has righteous wrath. We don't. <laughs> and there are too many passages from Romans 1 all the way sweeped out through the Old Testament that he will store his wrath against those who reject him, those who applaud evil. Read the last few verses of Romans 1, and he really targets in on those who stand up and say, oh, yeah, great oh, oh I fear that person who rejects Jesus and his word so ultimately we cannot morally persuade the world they are following their own father he's the father of lies Jesus called him we follow our father who sent his son and he laid it down for us So the best thing you can do for the world, you married folks, is love one another. Love like the gospel. Lay down your life for one another. Be a picture of Christ in the church every day. Battle for that. And God will do amazing things through your witness. See, righteousness reveals sin. That's why we love Jesus. We get close to him with the word. It reveals sin. And it's going to happen. You're going to be loving your spouse. And and it's going to affect people. Sometimes negatively. Sometimes positively. Preach the gospel through your marriage. Battle. Battle. Stay in it. It's easy to be. It's easy just to neglect marriage. Don't do that. The world needs it. Love your spouse. Let them see what Christ has done, amen? Let me pray for our nation and our church and then we'll stand and read our text and get into Philippians four. Father in heaven, we mourn over the sin of our nation. We kill the unborn as though they're animals. We rebel against God-given law enforcement We stick our heels in the ground, Lord, and want our own way as a nation. We want to live in the freedom of our flesh. And Father, I repent for a nation that has been given so much grace. But Father, you are so gracious, you always have a remnant. Even in the darkest times of church history, there has always been those who would not compromise. They would not give in on the gospel. They would believe that it was through Christ alone. And you sustain them. And Lord, you have a remnant in America. A remnant of of blood-bought souls who love the Lord Jesus Christ and stake their lives on his word. And I pray that you would protect them but use them for your glory. It could be costly, Lord. Laying down our lives and taking up a cross could be, have a different meaning for us in the future. We've been used to freedoms, Lord. And so we pray that you would sustain us, that the gospel would be on the forefront of our minds and our thoughts and our hearts, Lord. And that we would not cave we would joyfully with with great adoration for Jesus stand for truth because that's what those who come after us need. They need the truth. And so Lord, embolden us in these times We pray for the next generation. It is why our Sunday school and the teachers you have given us that have been trained, Lord, it is why our parenting classes and caring for parents and helping them is so important, Lord. It is the next generation that may fight the battles that we have begun. And we beg you to protect them, Lord. I pray for every mom and dad in this building and all those who hear this, Lord, that they would bend the knee to you, Lord Jesus. And they would make you Lord of their lives and center of their home, Lord, and they would strive and die to sin. Because not only was their joy for the gospel at stake, their children's lives are as well. So Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us. Father, ask this in closing, Lord, that we would be kind that your spirit would well up among us and the fruit of your labor would be seen in our love and our joy and our peace and our patience and our kindness and our gentleness and our self-control. May that be seen as we deal with family members, as we deal with loved ones, as we deal with those who come off the street or come to church or, or neighborhoods or coworkers, Lord, that will oppose the biblical view Help the fruit of spirit to be prominent. Gospel on our lips, Lord. And Lord, if we are to die for something, may we die for the glory of Christ, joyfully proclaiming that He is true in all that He said and did and accomplished. I pray this all in our great Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Will you stand with me now and turn to Philippians chapter 4 in your Bibles? We're trying to attempt to get through verses uh, 1 through 5. What an encouraging passage for me this week As I studied it and prepared The gospel in the daily life And and the gospel in conflict Want to resolve conflict? This is a message for you Bible says this Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 Therefore my beloved brethren Whom I long to see My joy and my crown In this way stand firm in the Lord My beloved I urge you, Elodia and Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companions, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is. Is near. You may be seated. As I thought about this message this morning, I was thinking about the threats against the church. It obviously ran to the issues of the Supreme Court and some of those other things. But when we look at the epistles that were written to the church by Paul and Peter and John, we see some themes that uh, repeat themselves constantly through the epistles. And two really jumped out at me this week that I see Paul handling here in Philippi and and, uh, and throughout many of the other churches as well. And that's one, is the world. The world is always trying to press in. And often one of the things we see is we see the church change in order to accommodate the world. And versus us (laughs) holding to bring change to the world. It's a problem. And Paul sees that and he addresses that. Look back with me in Philippians chapter three, verse seventeen, our text from just a few weeks ago said this, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. There was a problem, right? There was people starting to leave the example. They were, they were. The world was pressing in. In fact, he relates that in verse eighteen. Remember this. He says, "For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, weeping isn't this sad that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose god is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things." The world is always pressing in on the church. We. Too often open our doors in the wrong direction. We are to go out with the word of God. We are to take that to the world. So often the church, particularly in America, has opened the doors to the world and let the world change us. And so Paul knows that's a problem. He knows that's a pressing issue. The scriptures are replete in this truth. James 4.4 4 says this, You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? You want to define what that means to be a friend of the world. Because the Bible goes on to say, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I've had a few enemies through life, but I really, really don't want God as my enemy. Read the end of the book. He breathes and wipes out the nations. What are you going to do with him? So it's an issue. The world is pressing in on the church. And we either joyously, with the gospel on our breath, engage the world, or the world comes after us and changes us. And that's what's happening. Great evangelists are now changing their view from everything from marriage to gender to denouncing what the scriptures say. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what? The love of the Father is what? Not in them. Ooh. Kind of scary. Makes you think, hmm, do I love the world? Ugh, there's some things I like about it. <laughs> what, what am I doing with that? Right? It, it's destructive to the church. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows the battle. He he tells his disciples, keep watching, keep praying. That's what we do, right? We watch for the Lord. We live for the Lord. We live for his return. We live while we wait, but we pray. And it's just not mom and dad praying for kids. Kids praying for their own lives. I was thinking the other day, I said, you know, our children may not see all that's coming, and the changes are coming, because they live in it every day, right? I, I remember my parents telling us about things that was just scared them, right? As changes in the world, and we're like, eh, what are you all afraid about? Because we're in it, right? We see things, wisdom and age gives you, helps you recognize things, and, you know, oh, pray for your children, teach them to pray. Teach your children to Pray. Second issue that I think Paul hits on and all of the apostles write in great depth about is disunity, disputes that divide the church. Look with me at chapter one, verse 27. He warns them in a very appealing way. He says, only conduct yourself in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's no other option here, right? Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not in, well, you know, you have several choices how to conduct yourself as a Christian. A, you know, B, no, no. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. One that is broken and humbled to the fact that Jesus would come and spill his blood for us. And then he says, So whether I come and see you or I remain absent, he's not sure if he's going to get to Philippi. He says, I will hear of you that you're standing firm. Now notice this one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He always is talking about unity. Brother Phil Foley's down here in front, pastors, community Bible church. We were just jacking before he says, I'm preaching on unity of John 17. I go, Wow, what a passage! throughout the Bible, unity, unity in Christ. And it's a thread. And here in our text this morning, there's an issue with two women that's serious. And Paul is moved by the Spirit of God to address this. And he addresses the leadership, as we'll see. And it may be this issue that's causing the great anxiety of chapter four, verse six, that we're gonna deal with next week, anxiety in the gospel, Because it's not being dealt with. Someone's not saying, hey, hey, sisters, let's let's deal with the gospel here. Let's get this solved. So now let's look at God's word and see how to address these issues. Number one, the Bible says uh, in verse one that Paul loves them. He longs to see them. He calls them his joy and his crown, but then he exhorts them to stand firm. And so our first thought this morning is stand firm because you are loved and Christ is in control. Notice the therefore, the so that, or so then, your Bible might say there. That kicks this little section off there. This tells you it's a transition verse. And, and if I was separated, I might probably would have left, them, I left the chapter break out here. Uh, but it helps us find our way around in the scriptures. But there's a transitional verse that's coming off the prese- uh, previous text here. But before we, before Paul, it's interesting, before he gets to his main point, which is stand firm here, look how he expresses his love towards this congregation. He says, my beloved, these are my brethren, and they are love, probably even a better translation is, therefore, my brethren, loved, and I long to see you. I love you, and I long to see you, is the idea of the word there. He expresses and reassures the body of Christ in Philippi that he has a deep love for them and he longs to see them. These are remarks of a loving pastor who can't always be with them. God has separated. In fact, you know where he is, right? He's under house arrest. He's in prison, right? He longs to be with them, but he he knows that they need to be reassured that their pastor loves them. And Paul does that. And it's a little... Kind of claws in here. Therefore, my beloved brethren. And then he says, wait a minute. I want you to know I love you. I long to see you. And, and get this. You're my joy and my crown. And then he says, stand firm. This is how he starts the letter. Notice in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrances of you. He's sitting in prison. Or, or at least in house arrest, shackled to some soldier. Always offering prayers with joy in my every prayer for you all. Why? Verse 5, because you participate in the gospel from the first day until now. He loved this church. They were excited about the gospel. He says the great verse, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You can just see the love and emotions he has for these people. But see, Paul just isn't just for them. He, his crown and joy is not only the Philippi church, but it's all who believe. And, and this is a, one of the blessings that some of us pastors have as we travel around the world. And we'll go halfway around the world. They'll drive us into some jungle. We'll teach a pastor's conference and all these people will come out of the bush and, you, and within minutes your heart is attached to them because they believe the gospel. And you go, wow, they live in grass huts, they speak a different language, they eat funny things, and then I love them. I just can't wait to be with them because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and your heart just knits to them. You know this, maybe you're on vacation and you bump into a believer and you end up talking and you you meant to witness to them and they turn out to be believers and you have this incredible relationship with them by the end of the time. See, our hearts get knit together. But this was a special group to Paul. He says, you're my joy and my crown. I thought, hmm, could I say that while I was imprisoned? You know, we we may write, boy, we really miss you. What are you doing with my attorney to get me out of this? Where's my care package? Do you know how bad the food is in here? Paul says, you're my joy and my crown. It's amazing. He, he has such a desire for these people. And, it's, and again, it's not only them, it's, it's, it's everyone who loves the gospel. Listen to what he writes to the Thessalonica church in chapter 2, 19 and 20. Just listen. For who, for who is our hope and our joy or crown or exhortation? It is, not, is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming for you are our joy and our glory. A little later in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? The Bible says the angels rejoice when people get saved. I think maybe we should. I mean, he's so overwhelmed that people love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think maybe when you're witnessing, you're out in the world, and you're doing what we're supposed to be doing, the church becomes more sweet because you see so much rejection of the gospel. The church is sweet. You look at it and you go, oh, I can't wait to be with these people. It is, bar none, my favorite day of the week. I don't know about you, but it is my favorite day. Everything I do during the week focuses to this point. And I can't wait for you to walk in. Or wherever I'm at. I can't wait for the believers to come and gather and, and be here. Because this is it. You're my joy. I hope I'm your joy. Because we believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ. He also calls him a crown. It's interesting. It's not a word that we see, you know, a crown on somebody's head like a gold one or something. It's more of the wreath type of victory from an athletic competition. That it is It's interesting. Let's Think the Greek word is Stephanos. It's a it's a wreath. It's a crown. Something he ran hard for. He didn't just show up at a race like today they do because everybody gets blue ribbons in our politically correct day. You know, you didn't even start the race, but here's a ribbon. <laughs> Don't quite understand that, however. In that day, you only one ran who got the wreath. Right? They didn't hand them out to everybody. It, he worked for this, and, and it was hard. You remember when I started at Philippi and showed you how far he walked, how far he went to reach Mesopotamia. And then his journey's beyond that, and that was all by foot and ship and maybe a donkey or two, but it was a long ways, and, and he came and preached the gospel. He's in Philippi, they throw him in the jail, and they beat him to death, and him and Silas start singing, and the earthquake goes, and the jailer gets saved, but Lydia had already come to profess Christ before that, and now the church has its birth, but it cost him many stripes. And he says, you're my crown. I think there's so much here that I could just preach for everyone this verse. Just stay in the battle with your children. Do you have a list of unsaved people that you write down and you go, know, I'm gonna pray for these unsaved people. Do you have a list? Who's your crown? Who are you running after? See, Philippi was Paul's trophy he didn't want wealth. He didn't want the praise of men. He wanted gospel-loving, gospel-living, Christ-exalting, Christ-centered people. And he got them in Philippi. He says, you're my crown. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. And, and that's just a little addendum as you turn back to our text. He's actually trying to tell them to stand firm. He's coming off the context previously. But just as he mentions them as beloved brothers, he breaks into this longing and loving and joyful crown type of conversation. And then he says, Stand firm. Stand firm. Lean in to the wind. Set your feet on truth. Shod them with the gospel. This is such Pauline language. We hear this Pauline language all through the scriptures. Listen to what he says to the Corinth church, 1 Corinthians 5, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. I love this verse. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Steadfast. Unmovable. Now, now don't say, well, man, I'm just going to muscle up and solo bootstrap this, this thing and... Unmovable people who are people on their knees. They're people who rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, stand firm. be unmovable. First Corinthians 16, 13, the very next chapter, he says, Be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Ephesians chapter 6 in the great armor passage, he says in verse 11, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He's scheming, and man, as he thinks he's winning right now. He's scheming to the highest level of court in our nation. And he convinced five of them to reject God completely. He's scheming. Stand firm. For our struggles are not against flesh and blood. They're not fighting against the homosexuals. They need the gospel. They're sinners just like you and I were. We're fighting against the things of the devil. He hates God. And the Bible says, "But against the rulers and against the powers and against the world's forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of witness in the heavenly places, therefore take up the form of God so that you will be able to resist Him in the day of evil. Having done everything, what? Stand firm. Think you gave me a plaque one day. It's on my desk. Stand firm, pastor. Stand firm. Gird up your loins. Shod your feet with the gospel, blessed plate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, stand firm. This is Pauline language. A couple more Colossians it says to the Colossae church, chapter 2, verse 5, for even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your discipline and your stability in your faith. I like that phrase. See, we interact with missionaries all the time, and then I'll run, sudden so I get to go over there and see them. And we've been hearing about what's going on, and then we get there, and I want to see their stability and their faith. Wow, you guys are standing over here, right in the middle of the Muslim world, they're standing. And we're worried about our tax ID. no tax ID in Mindanao. <laughs> in India for a Christian church. Hey, I gave a check for 20 dollars. Can I get a receipt? It's not not in the world They're standing firm and, and, And that's what Paul always does In his text all over To these churches stand firm Last one 2 Thessalonians 2 15 He says so then brethren stand firm And hold to the traditions which you were taught Whether by word Of mouth or by letter Stand firm in that It's God's word He had to understand he was Writing something beyond himself when he says that, stand firm. And then the last phrase there in, in verse one says, in the Lord, and I like this. I think it refers back to verse 21 who tells us he's gonna transform our bodies into these bodies of his glory, but he's gonna do it by the exer- exertion of the power that he has, he has even to make everything subject to himself. So, So we stand firm in the Lord who has exhorting power to make everything come below him. At his name, every knee will bow. See, that's how we stand firm. So you go, when the world's going to hell in a handbasket? Pretty true statement, isn't it? (laughs) I think that's what the end of the book says. Should we be surprised? Man is going to love his flesh and love his desires and if you get in the way and you say something contrary to what he loves, he's not going to like it. You're exposing something that, sin, and we've got to get rid of this church, we've got to get rid of all these things, all these people, we want to do what we want to do. Paul says you stand firm. Stand firm. The Lord's in control. Second thought. The harmonious effects of the gospel-centered conflict resolution. The harmonious effects of the gospel-centered conflict resolution. This is a fascinating two verses here. It says, I urge Eulodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companions, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, I've got to go faster than I like in this passage, but buckle up. (laughs) After Paul gives this incredible, loving, encouraging discourse to them, he turns to a conflict within the church. And he starts to plead for the resolution of an argument going beyond a, a conflict of two women that are in the church. And these are not just any women. They're women who were with Paul and were in the battle. They have contended, is the Greek word, labored in the ministry with them and Clement and these other brothers and sisters that names are written in the book of life. So Paul, I think, has been hinting that this is an issue all along. And if you look at verse 27, remember he said, in chapter 1, he said, I hear, uh, you know, whether I come or not, I want you to be standing in one spirit and one mind, striving together. You see, he's already hinting. He knows there's a problem of disunity within the church. So he starts talking about it a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Uh Uh-oh, there's there's an unlike minds, and they're having a conflict. That's where conflict comes, right? When we have two minds versus one mind. I'll talk more about that in a second. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's after he told them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you. He says, stop grumbling. There's a grumbling. There's something complaining. There's something going on. Maybe it's a Martha Mary thing. I don't know. Something's happening here. He doesn't tell us. What's exactly going on here? But these women, and um, they're at the center of this dispute, this conflict. Now, I As I thought through this, I I thought, well, let's think through the problem here. It doesn't tell us, but let me put some thoughts to maybe what it is not or is. They seem to be active members in the church. They haven't left the church. They're not outside the church causing problems. Some people cause problems, eventually just leave. They're not, they haven't left. They're there. They're in the church. They're known by their names. They also seem to be prominent women. They might be, and this is where my thoughts went, they might have been with Lydia, Lydia, who got saved in Acts 16 before Paul got chucked in the prison. They might have been there with her and heard the gospel. These could be early convents and part of that church plant that happened in Philippi from the result of Lydia's salvation in the Philippian jailers' family. They could be very prominent women that are there. They also, the conflict doesn't seem to be over a doctrinal problem. So how do you know that? Because Paul would not have let it go. If it was a doctrinal issue, he would have said, hey, Christ alone, or he he would have dealt with some trinity, or he would have dealt with that, and he would have sided with the person who was doctrinally right and said, hey, this is right. Make sure you deal with this within the church. He doesn't do that. So I don't think it's a doctrinal issue. I think it's a conflict. Now, look at the verse that says, I urge Elodia... And I urge, he says it twice, he uses that verb, it's exhort, plead. He, he's, it, it's, it's not like, hey, maybe you ought to think about doing this. It's like, we got to get this solved, right? I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony with the Lord. It's an interesting word, this word harmony. It's, a, it's an infinitive. It's a present, active infinitive. It, means, it literally means to think or live in a certain way. And he says, and it has, heart. we get the word harmony, we translate it that, because it literally says, as one, to live and think as one. I urge these two women to live and think as one, not two. And you know what I mean. When we have a little spousal of misunderstandings, we have two different thinkings, right? He thinks one thing, she thinks another, wham, right? That's conflict. Paul says, I urge you to think as one. Now what's the one thing, as us Christian marriages have, that we can't break into two, we, it only can be one? It is the gospel. And that's where he goes after in this text, is he brings in the gospel, look, they share it in the gospel, think as one. Think as one, that's what he solves it. Tyndale translated it this way, he, he said, think in one accord in the Lord always. Ooh, that'll take the conflict out. Conflict comes when we don't think as one, when we think two different ways, and then Paul goes after, I think he's going after the leadership in verse three. He says, indeed, true companions. So zurgos. so zirgos is the word, or gos, so xergos is the word. It, we get the word comrade, but it goes even farther. There's, it's, we, we get the word a fellow yoked. I know it's a weird word, but it it means we were yoked up together, pulling for the gospel. You guys, get with these gals and remind them that the gospel solves a conflict. And I think this is is pointed towards the the leadership, he says, look, you fellow yoked up guys, you elders and deacons, notice in the very first verse of the, of the epistle, 1-1, one, one, he says, Paul, Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, all the saints of Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, I think they dropped the ball on this. And I understand it a little bit. Sometimes, get two gals that are having a problem, you can get in trouble if you can get between that. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes us men are a little bit like, whoo <laughs> where's women's ministry? <laughs> Not to say that men aren't any worse, right? We just don't talk, right? <laughs> but Paul's saying, Hey, you true companions, I ask you to help these women. Don't yet this conflict hurt what God is doing in Philippi. This is a beautiful church. Don't let it tear apart what God has done. So much more to say, but I want to challenge us a little practically here. I really believe the gospel resolves a conflict. And I, and I think that's what he does. He reminds them that they were engaged in this struggle. They were contending for the faith as the idea of the word and I think when we, have got, when we have conflict, the gospel will solve it. And you and I, or our, us and our spouses at times may have two different ways of thinking. Are we willing to say, can we just stop this conversation and talk about the gospel for a minute? And what he's doing is he's pointing to the leadership to bring them back to that. So a couple of thoughts went through my mind on, on the gospel and conflict is... If you have a conflict, get some gospel-centered counseling. If it's that bad, come and get some gospel-centered I promise you, if you walk in those offices across the street and you come for counseling, you're getting the gospel. Because we don't know what else to tell you. (laughs) Let's see. um, You know, you could make the bed. Um, Have you tried the dishes? I mean, those are good things to do. But it's a gospel that's gonna change your two thinking into one. I, I thought about this long and hard this week. If you have a conflict for somebody and, and maybe they don't wanna resolve it but you're being burdened this morning to resolve it, go have a gospel conversation with them. Somehow look, When next time you're able, somehow turn the conversation to the gospel and see what God does. And you say, I don't know if I can do that. Okay, can you do this? Can you come to that person that you have a conflict with and say, Will you pray with me? If they're a Christian and they don't want to pray with you, I'm not sure what else you can do with them, but most likely they're going to say, I'll pray with you. Start praying the gospel. Thank the Lord that He saved your wretched, sinful hide. Get into a prayer and just, Lord, I want to thank you that you love me, that you sent your son, that you knew me from the foundations of the world. I did not deserve this. And and Lord, here my friend and I, we want to pray right now and we want to thank you. You open your eyes, I bet you that conflict looks a lot less. See the gospel resolve conflict. And it'll it'll take away the sharpness and the length of conflict when we can say, you know, honey, I know we disagree. Let's talk about something we do agree. Jesus loves us and he died for us. And I think that's what he's doing. He's bringing them back, remind them of these things. They shared in the struggle. Pray together. See, after asking these ladies to have one thinking, he gets after the leadership and says, help them resolve this. See, I love Paul's approach. He he reminds them that these ladies were part of the spread of the gospel. This is not something that you can just let go. These are not just bypassers. These are not people that are just fighting and causing problems. These are people who love the gospel. They're just going through a struggle. Sound familiar? We love the gospel, don't we? But there's times we go through struggles, and, and it's, hey... Sweeties, ladies, come on. (laughs) Oh, you've done such great work. Paul has mentioned you. And for 2,000 years, people are going to read about you. (laughs) So much more to say, but notice the last phrase, whose names are written in the book of life after he mentions this Clement and these rest of my fellow workers. Let me read you a couple of verses and see if there's anything worth fighting over after this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. I don't want to fight after that verse. Verse thirteen, chapter thirteen, verse eight: All who dwell on the earth will worship him, and everyone whose name has been has not been written from the foundations of the world in the book of life, who has been slain. That's the problem. There's going to be judgment, and he talks about that. And get all the way down to Revelation chapter twenty, verse twelve. He says, "I saw the dead, and the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and the name, and another book was opened which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in it. Verse 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. Still want to have conflict? Your name is written in the book of life from the foundations of the world. God has a book, (laughs) He's keeping track of all the stuff that's going on. Don't worry about the Supreme Court and all that stuff. He's got that handled. He wrote your name in a book, and he's going to read it someday. Stop fighting. It ain't worth it. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, it'll resolve conflict in your life. See, we have conflict because we don't love the gospel. We start thinking two different ways. Preach the gospel to yourself. One last thought and I'll move on quickly with the last two verses is if you're in a conflict with somebody and you're here today and doubtlessly they're here, if there's something going on here because we all have conflicts. Would you vow to the Lord to take care of that this week? Would you say, Lord, I, I love your gospel and I'm gonna go seek restitution, resolution. I, I'm gonna go pray with this person and pray the gospel with them. Don't, don't let it go. It's not worth it. it. It not only hurts you, but it hurts the church. And, and I don't know of anything, so don't, well, Scott's got, got something on his mind. I don't know of anything. I just know people, I know myself. If you have a problem, deal with that. Third, um, the joyful results of the gospel in life. Look at verse 4. He just breaks out after all this. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I say, rejoice. See, conflict causes sorrow and hurt and pain, doesn't it? You ever said things you wish you could take back? Every one of us in here could answer that yes. But the gospel produces joy. Because the things that you said were the things that nailed Jesus to the cross, which his blood wiped out. And we have forgiveness for it. And and when you think about the gospel, just joy comes throughout your body, doesn't it? And he says, look, your name's written in the life, the book of life. Rejoice. No matter what man can do to you, your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice. If Christ is truly the joy giver, then rejoice. If he isn't, I don't know, maybe there's a meeting or something you could go to and they'll give you 12 things. But I'm going to take the gospel to help resolve my conflict. I was reading Romans 8. We sang that today, Romans 8. Turn with me to verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of God? Will the Supreme Court or will tribulation? Will the homosexual agenda? Will the world's views and morals or lack of them? Will distress or persecution and famine? Those weren't in the Bible, I was adding that. Or nakedness or peril and sore? Sword. Here he goes and quotes from Psalms 36. For our day, for our sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are slaughtered as sheep, uh, slaughtered like sh- sheep. This is a term that uh, the church said the Romans treated Christians like they were animals. But then, verse 37, he turns and says, "But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors. Not just conquerors, overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us." So, no matter what kind of conflicts I have, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing, or problems, or disputes, or anything else will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're free. And I don't think it's a license to be at war with people. So you have a conflict, say, go to them and say, you know, the gospel's broken my heart, and if I've said anything that is offensive to you, I want to come and apologize it, because I believe Jesus died for those things. Who's going to fight with that? The most likely they go, you're right, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And if they don't, keep praying for them, and pray for your own heart. Last thought back in our text, verse five. And I'm way over time, but it is such a beautiful text. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The verse displays what happens to gospel-centered people. They, They have this gentle spirit that takes over them. It doesn't mean that we don't stand firm and lean into truth. It doesn't mean that we don't compromise. We're not saying that, but we're gentle. There's something about us now. The gospel has softened our hardness, and Paul says, let it be gentle. This word, epikes, um, is an interesting word. It's not used terrible mount. It, it's rich, and so we translate it in a lot of different meanings. If You'll notice that several translations have different words for it, but it, but it's gospel-generated, and it has this idea of gentle, reasonable, caring, generous, forbearing, forgiving, very friendly spirit about gospel-centered people. See, that would resolve Eulodia and Syntyche's problem, was the gospel. And it resolved resolve your problem. And so he says, have this gentle spirit, and let it be known to all men. You know what's so wonderful when reconciliation is made between brothers and sisters? The people hear about that. And it warms people's hearts. Mom, dad, you know it when children are fighting and they make up. Mom and dad, you know what it's like to make up after a fight. That sensitivity, that sweetness to one another, that's what needs to be done. This gentle spirit needs to come out of us and then he says the Lord is near and I'll just close with this we can talk about this a little more next week as we flow into the rest of the text but I don't think it it means so some of the commentators translate it well you know get this done because the Lord's coming that may be true but I don't think that's what the text is saying I think he's with us lo I am with you to the end of the age I will never leave you nor forsake you I think he's right here and so if you're going to go resolve a conflict he's going to be with you He's going to help you get through that. I don't know a better example than communion, so let's do that, and and then we'll close here. (laughs) Father, thank you for a chance to look into this text. Lord, we all run into conflicts. Um, We struggle with our pride. Uh, We have mixed views, uh, and, and the gospel is what centers our view, Lord, gives us a one thinking, Lord, and we want that. So, Lord, I thank you for the example of these two ladies. Um, I'm sure you solved this, Lord, because they struggled and they contended for the gospel. And I'm sure, Lord, that you softened their hearts, Lord, and the church was healed and great things happened, Lord. But it is a good example for us, Lord, that we need to be those who settle arguments, settle conflict with the gospel. Not who can yell aloud us or demean the most, or just strategically win the argument, Lord, but that we would turn to the gospel, and it would soften our hearts and cause us to think alike. So, Lord, I pray that that would happen in our marriages. It would happen in our homes. It would happen in our church. It would happen in ministries. It would happen in things that are going on that nobody needs to hear about, but, Lord, I pray that it would be resolved. Lord, we thank you for our time. Lord, now we want to worship you in communion. It is a tremendous reminder of the ultimate conflict that you resolved. Our sin, our damnation that we were deserved, Lord. And so we thank you for this moment in Jesus' name. Amen.